0: This disgust might be one reason or this negative feeling people have towards these false stories might be one reason why they're more likely to share it.
1: This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling
2: science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Speaking of a quickly debunked WikiLeaks hoax in 2012, the investigative journalist Glenn Greenwald wrote, it is true that the internet can be used to disseminate falsehoods quickly, but it just as quickly roots them out and exposes them. So is Greenwald's stance true today as well? Today we're joined by Surush Fusugi from MIT's Media Lab, who spoke with us about his research into how true and false news spread online. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at WeShare Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science.
0: Here's Sarush Visugi. Hi, I'm Surush Visugi. I'm a postdoc at the MIT Media Lab, also a fellow at Harvard Beckman Klein Center. I'm an MIT lifer. I've been at MIT for many, many years. I came to Boston to study at MIT in uh, 2004 as an undergrad, and I ended up getting my bachelor's there, and then my master's, and then my PhD. And then I decided to stay a couple of years for postdoc. And, and now actually I'm on the mo- job market this year. So I'm going around giving job talks, hopefully landing a position for next fall.
1: Ryan and I began our conversation with Saroosh by asking what led to his interest in researching the spread of false news and rumors online.
0: I was a second year PhD student uh, in 2013 when the uh, Boston Marathon bombings happened. At that point, I was still exploring research ideas for my PhD thesis, but uh, one kind of area that I was getting closer to making my PhD topic was on creating computational models of language learning. Um, I've always been interested in uh, linguistics and natural language processing from a computational point of view. So uh, I've been interested in, for example, coming up with computational models of how children learn language. Uh, and I did a little bit of work on that uh, for my master's thesis. And so I wanted to kind of dig deeper in that on that topic for my PhD, but then the... Uh, bombings happened in April 2013, and uh, as you remember, probably MIT was at the center of some of the stuff that happened. There was an MIT police officer that got uh, shot and killed on campus at MIT, Officer Sean Collier, and um, you know uh, there was a manhunt, Cambridge went on lockdown, there was a lot of crazy stuff happening that week from the Monday when the bombings happened until Thursday, I believe, when the suspects were apprehended, or uh, Friday morning, I think. And in that week, uh, Twitter and other social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter became, and Reddit, became my main source of information. And not just for me and most of my friends who were locked down in MIT grad dorms, uh, they went on social media to figure out what the hell was happening. And um, it was great because you would get, real-time updates from uh, people on the ground, you know, so they're like, they could say something like, oh, I just saw you know, a shootout here, you know, and here's a picture. Oh, I just heard that there was a, another bomb there. And so you would get real-time update on what was happening. But uh, what I found out, not, like a couple of days after things settled down and uh, people kind of did a uh, looked back at what was happening, uh, we realized that a lot of the stuff we were reading on social media was not true. Some of it was harmless in a way, but some of it could have been really damaging and some of it was damaging. And so after I realized you know, basically that half of or a good chunk of what I was being exposed to on Twitter was false uh, and other social media platforms, I um, decided to change my topic for my dissertation and use my skills. So my backgrounds in natural language processing and machine learning apply to big data. And so I wanted to use these uh, skills that I had to study Basically, the spread of uh, rumors on social media. And to be more specific, I, w- I was interested in creating a tool, engineering a tool that would detect stories that spread around real world events like the Boston Marathon bombings. So, like a real time or near real time uh, rumor detection system. And then I wanted my system to be able to verify these stories as fast as it could.
2: With social media, especially on Twitter, information is shared from one or more users to multiple other users. When information is reshared, a cascade is formed. Soroush and his team selected over 126,000 tweets involving contested news stories which linked to one of six professional fact-checking websites and could therefore be verified as true or false claims. They then examined four characteristics inherent to cascades, as he describes next.
0: Well, the size is pretty straightforward. That's just the number of retweets.
2: But the depth is how many hops on the
0: followership graph that thing spreads. And so if person A tweets something and person B tweets person A, because person B is following person A, and if person, B, uh, person C retweets person B because person C is following person B, and so on and so forth, depth captures that, how many hops it goes, right? And it's basically a word of mouth, like I heard this from a friend of a friend of a friend, so that's three depth, <laughs> right? Then the other measure, the structural virality, is somewhat related to depth, it, it captures the general structure of the cascade, and so it's, it's a little technical, but uh, I can tell you the technical definition and also what it actually means non-technically, but tech, uh, the technical definition is the average shortest distance between all the nodes in a tree. That's the virality. Uh, But what it actually means is it captures whether something, whether a tree, like a cascade, a diffusion tree or diffusion cascade, has a, for example, a broadcast shape or a uh, kind of viral peer-to-peer shape. So it uh, it really is good at distinguishing between broadcast uh, diffusion and peer-to-peer diffusion. And so if you have a, if, if there's an account that has a million followers and they tweet something and a million people of the followers, it's say all million retweet that, that has a very broadcast shape, right? It's just one person and then boom. Uh, whereas if let's say my account only has a hundred followers, I tweet something, but then because it's something so interesting, it you know it basically goes viral, not because I have a lot of followers, but because a friend of mine retweets and another friend retweets and then it just becomes. It goes really deep and like it reaches different areas of uh, the followership net graph, then that has a very different shape, that has a peer-to-peer diffusion shape. And so a, uh, a cascade with high vi- uh, structural virality score is more like the second example I gave. The, the more broadcast-like the diffusion was, the lower the virality of that is.
1: Their findings showed that false news spreads further, faster, farther, and more broadly online than does the truth. Furthermore, the algorithm Saroosh trained could also predict whether other online rumors were true or false 75% of the time, even before those tweets were fact-checked. Ryan and I were curious to learn which characteristics that Saroosh and his team looked at were most influential in the
0: spread of false news online. One hypothesis could be that false news spreads faster than true news because people who spread false news have more followers or, or anything like that, or like they're, they're more engaged on Twitter or something like that. And so we looked at various account characteristics, uh, things like the number of followers, number of followees, how old their accounts are, uh, how engaged they are on Twitter, and things like that, and whether they're verified or not. And we compared the uh, accounts that spread false news with accounts that spread true news. Uh, we compared these characteristics. And what we found is that um, the difference doesn't explain it. In fact, the opposite of you know, what you would expect is true, which is that accounts that spread true news are actually more likely to be verified and they have slightly more number of followers. So it's not that these, these characteristics explain why false news spreads faster than true news. That was the basic uh, finding. One thing I wanna make clear is that uh, we did look at bots, but one thing we didn't look at, and it could, for example, uh, again, we didn't look at it, so we don't know whether it's true or not, but it could potentially be an explanation of why false news spreads faster than true. Is, you know We didn't look at, for example troll accounts right or or any kind of kind of uh, cyborg accounts. These are accounts that are not bots, but there's like a person who's controlling a few accounts with tools that let them amplify their message right, uh, and or like people gaming their Twitter's uh, algorithm like, so that certain things will be set, like trending or anything, something like that. so these, these are things we didn't look at and they could very well explain like we don't know so anything we say is speculative, so we don't know whether that would explain. The behavior we're seeing, or not, Uh, if it is true that they're responsible for this, uh, it's very sophisticated behavior uh, for them to be. uh, I mean, like having bots is not super sophisticated, but like a lot of these other things is sophisticated behavior. And if and if it is the case that this is the reason why, uh, you know, what we're seeing, what we're seeing, uh, then it shows like a really coordinated, sophisticated effort behind it. And again, we didn't look at this, so. Uh, I I don't know if it's true one way or the other. Uh,
2: So anything we say is speculative. To learn whether there might be any linguistic clues that could explain how false rumors propagate, Soroush and his team examined the emotional content of replies to true and false news tweets. Here he explains how they explored the ways in which people respond to both types of news. The best way to do this would be to survey people, actually, to ask them, Oh, you saw this thing?
0: How do you feel about that? or why did you share this or anything or like any kind of questions you could ask about people's behavior around false or true news That would be the best way to address this question. But obviously we you know didn't do that for this study, and for many different reasons it's not an it's not easy to run these surveys on Twitter and uh, we decided to look at people's actually people what they're saying in response to these articles as a proxy for their uh, reaction to these stories and one way you could do this is to run it through sentiment analysis to get kind of positive, negative. Uh, but we wanted to get more uh, more uh, specific emotions than just positive and negative. And so we used the eight basic emotions. Like there are eight emotions that capture most of people's uh, emotions. So like Everything you can think of would fall under one of these eight emotions. And uh, these are things like fear, disgust, anticipation you know joy and sadness are also part of it so anyways there's eight emotions and so we basically the same way people create sentiment classifiers, we did that for these eight emotions so we just extended it slightly to cover more emotions uh uh to get a better sense of exactly not whether something some response is negative or positive but what is it exactly that makes it negative is it fear is it disgust you know uh things like that and so that I, I that was uh that was, um, our attempt to understand people's uh, reasoning or people's reaction to, uh, to these news articles without actually having to uh, create surveys. And so, yeah, the surprise finding didn't really surprise us that much, mostly because our previous analysis showed that false news is apparently more novel than true news. And obviously you would expect people to be more surprised when they see something novel. Uh, the discussion was interesting uh, because Uh, We didn't expect that, but it kind of makes sense. Um, uh, There's been other research that, you know, in in the field of communication that show that people are more likely to share something that's, share a news piece that's, that has negative content than positive content. Uh, They didn't look at social media. They looked, I believe just like uh, New York times and other, like people sharing articles, like either with their family members or an email or something. And it seems like uh, people just like to share things with the, negative, you know, thing, uh, negative feel to it more than they'd like to share positive stories. And so that kind of made us think that this disgust might be one reason or these negative feelings people have towards these false stories might be one reason why they're more likely to share it because of this other research that kind of shows that these kind of negative emotions do have an effect on people's sharing behavior. Um, so yeah, it, it was an interesting finding. We didn't expect it, but it was interesting.
1: Though it wasn't the focus of their study, Ryan and I were interested in learning if people may have different motivations for sharing false news online, as well as what might help persuade them to reconsider doing so. Here, Soroush gives us his thoughts on the question.
0: This is outside the scope of this study, and so, again, this is me speculating, but my hypothesis is that there's three kinds of people who share uh, false news. Uh, One, they do it maliciously on purpose. The second type they do it because you know they like juicy gossip, interesting things, uh, and they don't care whether it's true or not, so not that they are uh, on purpose sharing something, they just want to share something uh, something false, but they just want to share something interesting and the third type they do it out of you know <laughs> i'm going to call it ignorance, but what I mean is that they, they just don't have the time or they don't you know they didn't look at the source that closely and they share something and it might end up being false and I do believe that these three groups of people basically account for. There is enough, like if you do a division, I believe there is enough people in each category and it'll be interesting to, for further study, to divide, like look at these three different groups of people and I bet their behavior is very different. And the ways that they, uh, you need to intervene to stamp the spread of misinformation is very different for each group. So behavioral intervention uh, methods could potentially apply to groups number two or two and three. Well, the first, you need very different kind of systems. You need, you need to detect these malicious agents. And you know, I don't know what you would do, but at least you know, the approach to detect these people is gonna be very different. I think these three different types of people, like the third type probably will not be as interested in engaging really around the conversation in the replies, but the first two might be. And so again, something we didn't look at, but will be really interesting for future research to look at
2: that. Unlike Facebook, tweets posted to Twitter are almost always public. The analytics data that Sarush and his team gained access to, however, are not. Since we spoke with him, just as the details of Cambridge Analytica's misuse of private Facebook data were first emerging, Doug and I were especially interested in learning what led Twitter to share every tweet ever made with Sarush's team.
0: The co-authors in my study are uh, my ad, my uh, postdoc advisor, Professor Deb Roy, and uh, Professor Sinan Aral, who was in my PhD committee. And so uh, after my PhD defense, which was about uh, rumors, as I mentioned, we had this discussion. so he decided to collaborate with me on this project as well. Um, our laboratory, the laboratory for social machines, which is headed by Professor Deb Roy. Um, we, we had a special relationship with Twitter when it comes to data access. Not that we have, so we have the access to data that everyone else could get access to. It's just that it costs a lot of money to get access to that kind of data, <laughs> and so it, you can think of it as kind of a sponsorship. So Twitter is sponsoring us by like giving us free access to their data, and uh, yeah, I mean, definitely having Deb as someone involved with Twitter really helped get that, you know, uh, sponsorship. But Twitter also uh, sponsors our lab with money as well, so not just data access but also uh, financial. Uh, uh, Gifts from Twitter, and so that that relationship definitely helped us a lot uh, to get access to this kind of data. So Twitter sponsors our lab, uh, but they don't uh, tell us what to work on. So they give us access to data, and uh, and uh, and you know, and so we, we this was something that I decided to work on just because of my PhD thesis. And they weren't uh, you know kind of for it or against it. They supported any kind of research that came out of our lab. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't like Twitter said, oh look at this or don't look at this. So it was just something we did. Nowadays, most of the interesting data uh, lives you know, with corporations like Google, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, and especially Facebook and Twitter. And so any kind of research you want to do, you have to you know, work with these corporations nowadays to get access to interesting data. And certain uh, like platforms like Twitter is easier, much easier to work with because their stuff is public. Whereas with Facebook, there's a lot more privacy concerns around data.
1: We asked Saroosh for his thoughts on how the spread of false news and rumors might be best investigated, as well as what courses of action he hopes that social media platforms might adopt to mitigate them.
0: You know, I think this kind of research needs to be, if we don't do anything like, about this, the problem is going to persist. And I'd rather the research on uh, detecting and studying false news and rumors, i rather that research be done in the open uh where people can actually see the results and maybe disagree with it and then they can build on top of it, even if that means that others would uh uh you know get access to you know something that would let them game the system. But you know then you push back and you do something better. So yes, it is kind of you are creating an arms race, but I think that's the, the kind of transparency is the best way forward with this kind of work. My other authors would probably disagree or maybe they agree. I don't know, but my personal opinion is that I don't think the platforms should do anything that would be even closely could closely be called censorship so I don't think they should for example uh remove news that they think is fake or anything like that I don't think they should be doing that but what they could be doing is they could be coming like providing these information quality metrics so if if they let you see whatever you're saying but but give you a sense of for example this source that you're reading from You know, according to Snopes, 80% of what they said in the past was false. And then you decide whether you want to read that and retweet that. I think providing more information about what people are reading and the sources of these things is really helpful and something that the platforms could do. But I think actually censoring information and not letting people see certain things, that's something I don't agree with.
2: Sarush's earlier work involved creating a tool for detecting false rumors on social media platforms. And this project extended that research by examining how false and true rumors are shared. Given his expertise, Doug and I wanted to learn where his interest might take him next. One thing
0: I am planning on doing is taking the dataset that we've collected and uh, thinking really from an engineering point of view, thinking about, all right, here's, here we have this, this larger data set across many different topics. Uh, which is, uh, could we create a uh, engineering tool that could detect these uh, false stories before they're actually verified or before they're shown to be true or false by these fact-checking organizations? I think that'll be a very interesting extension. And uh, the, the, the most, from my point of view, the, the extension to this work that I'm most interested about is actually looking at behavioral intervention experiments. So I'm less interested in now detecting false news and rumors, but uh, more interested in uh, uh, figuring out whether there are certain ways we could I- uh, intervene to dampen the spread of uh, rumors and false news. And when I mean intervene, I don't mean like the platforms intervening, or or there be policy, you know, that would you know censor people. I mean algorithmic intervention. So maybe having tools that detect uh, false news spreading and figure out who is on the path. You know to be exposed and maybe let them know the truth before they're exposed to the falsehood or something like that or maybe come up with an information like quality metric that lets people know when they're reading something how good the quality of that information is and maybe that'll help them think twice before they retweet something that has a low quality rating so these kind of intervention methods are what i'm really interested in as an extension of this study
1: the widespread use of social media seems to have accelerated our capacity to isolate ourselves from others whose opinions and perspectives differ from our own. This amplification and reinforcement of media that aligns with our established beliefs and opinions has been dubbed the echo chamber effect. We asked Sarush for his perspective into this phenomenon.
0: We had this study basically around the 2016 presidential election. and. Uh, using our access to the twitter data we we looked at people in our data set who had commented about the election and at the end of the election and everything was over we mapped them basically on twitter and we uh, had some way of determining whether that those people were you know supporters of trump or clinton or sanders and whatnot and and so when we mapped these people we saw a really clear uh, kind of uh, Echo chambers, uh, like echo chambers. I'm sorry. So, for example, there was a cocoon with very little connections, like a tightly connected cocoon with very little connections outside of the cocoon. And interestingly enough, we looked at journalists uh, on Twitter, and we saw that mostly they're outside of these these cocoons. And uh, so there was kind of a communication gap between that cocoon and the rest of Twitter, including journalists. So we did look at kind of these 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 uh, cocoons and these filter bubbles through that lens, through the lens of the 2016 election. Uh, one thing uh, that we would be really interested to do in the future is to combine that research on... Uh, and by the way, that was published in Vice News, if you're interested in reading that. It's called the uh, Journalists and Trump voters live in separate online uh, bubbles. We, so that's, that work is still under uh, review, we're going to publish it in an academic journal, but because it was so interesting, we wanted to kind of uh, have it out there as kind of a news article. Uh, And yeah, so we're really interested in the future, maybe combining some of the work on uh, false news and uh, our work on mapping these tribal networks and uh, these uh, echo chambers. But uh, we haven't done that kind of intersection yet.
2: Publicity and press coverage of Sarusha's study has been ubiquitous since its publication in early March of 2018. As of the release of this episode of Parsing Science, it ranks in the top five of all research publications that are monitored by Altmetric, a company which tracks the online popularity of published research which also lists it as the second highest scoring article published ever by the journal Science over its 138-year history. We asked Soroush about his experience of all the media attention the study has received.
0: In terms of the general news, you know, as you said, it's gotten so much attention that I don't even know, like, who else is, like, a lot of the, uh these articles they didn't even talk to us. They just read the paper and they wrote an article or they're quoting from some other article or something like that. And so yeah it is really interesting actually to look at the uh, <laughs> look at the coverage and uh uh you're we actually joking that uh you know the title of our paper is Spread of True and False News Online and we we're joking of doing a follow on project called the spread of spread of false uh, true and false news online online basically <laughs> and so I think yeah, there's been, there's been some uh, misunderstandings in the media, but I think overall, uh, uh, at least in the academic circles, you know, the message has been received and I think has been mostly positive. And there's already talks of collaborations in kind of moving forward with behavioral intervention uh, metrics that I described. And I, so I think the, the coverage, even though there has some negatives to it, I think overall has been good to raise awareness and also has created a lot of opportunities for collaboration, which I think is very valuable.
1: Often invisibly, computational algorithms mine and analyze our interactions with technology. While the convenience afforded by everything from speech recognition and computer vision to traffic navigation and medical diagnosis afford many benefits, they can also expose us to privacy risks and even threaten our civil liberties. Given the pace of their growth, we wanted to hear what implications Soroush predicts that such technologies will have in our future.
0: I think they definitely have a lot to offer, but I'm really really uh worried about the ethical uh implications of using an algorithm for everything mostly because nowadays most algorithms are black boxes and uh, you don't really know why an algorithm made a decision and so i think any time an algorithm is used for a case like this it should be really easy to ask the algorithm why it made a decision you can't just have an algorithm as a black box saying oh this is right this is wrong or this guy is guilty this guy is not without you know uh, it being uh, responsible like without us being able to understand why it made that decision and you know that's a that's a very active area of machine learning which is you, know, you have this for example neural network deep learning system that does something can you get it to explain to you what it did, why it did what it did that's an active area of machine learning which kind of connects to this whole thing which is uh, getting systems to explain their decision making process And so uh, I think, yes, algorithms have a lot to offer, but they have to be very transparent and very easy to interpret. Uh, As you know, algorithms are never 100% accurate. And algorithms' uh, performance really relies on the training data that was used to train it. And so if there was any bias in that training data, you might be like the outcome of the algorithm, the predictions of the algorithm might be biased. And so... I think, yes, algorithms are useful, but there needs to be more transparency and better ways to understand exactly what is going on inside these algorithms.
2: Lastly, the fields of social media, machine learning, and artificial intelligence are moving rapidly, making a challenge of keeping up with their advances. So we asked Saroosh what unifying idea he thinks we should pay more attention to. There's
0: There's a whole movement of what is called AI in governance. And I think it's become somewhat inevitable that in the next few decades, there's going to be more and more machine learning and AI use. Even now, as we speak, for example, in certain states in the U.S., the uh, sentences given out by courts uh, are informed by machine learning algorithms. And so there's going to be more and more of these algorithms being used in different areas of governance. And so there's this whole new movement emerging, uh, which is basically a coalition of machine learning scientists and computer scientists, basically. and uh, people in policy and law uh, and, you know, public service to try to really, for both sides to understand each other. You know, these things, as they start running society, they we don't want them to be these black boxes that no one knows exactly how they're working and why they're making the decisions. And so we want, we want transparency and we want both sides of this equation, the policymakers and the computer scientists to be aware of each other. And so this whole movement of AI in governance is something that is really shaping up to be a big movement in the, uh, in computer sciences and, and social sciences and something that people might be
2: interested in learning more about. That was Surush Busugi discussing his article, The Spread of True and False News Online, published in the journal Science. You'll find a link to his paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other materials he discussed during the show. Have you got a tip for parsing science? If so, we'd
1: love to hear from you. Drop us a note at parsingscience.org suggest, or leave us a toll-free message at 1-844-XPLORIT, and we might feature
2: your call in a future show. That's 1-844-975-6748. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Philip Zimbardo, Professor Emeritus at Stanford University and lead investigator of the Stanford Prison Experiment. He'll join us to talk about his current research into the heroism of defying unjust authority figures. It's not heroic not to do something that somebody tells you to do something that you think is wrong, but then it's to challenge that authority uh, openly and publicly.
1: We hope that you'll join us again.